Recently, my wife and I got to go to something called BMW Track Days, where we got to go uh, get racing instruction in BMW cars in the FedEx parking lot. It was quite the rodeo. Uh, and the instructor we had was a, a neat guy. He used to work for the uh, Michigan State Police, and he was involved in a couple high-speed chases, and then he decided he was going to become a professional speed racer. Um, you can see that temptation, right? If you're a police officer, you're always chasing the bad guys. Why not just do this all the time? So he became an instructor at the Motor Speedway and now works for BMW. And he said something interesting as we got into the, uh, the cars, and this was a sweet date idea, if I do say so myself, was race days with BMW cars. I mean, that's tough to beat. He said something as we got in the car. He said, you know, there's two ways you can lose in a race. Um, one, which is obvious, by being too slow. And the other is by being stupid, was his word, <laughs> by being just, just too dumb, not following common sense and just being too brash. And that's stuck in my head because I think those two rules apply to everything in life, don't they? <laughs> There's two ways you can mess this up, by going too fast or going too slow. <laughs> We're going to see two kings tonight. There's four kings left in Israel's history, four kings left in Jerusalem's history. None of the four are good. Only two are noteworthy. There's really only two legit kings left. There's two other guys. We'll see all of them just for a brief second tonight. But there's really only two legit kings that actually reign, actually have kingdoms, and we'll look at them tonight. Both of them do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Both of them fight against God's word two different ways. One guy rejects God's word by, by fighting it. One guy rejects God's word by ripping it up, by being bold against it, by denying it, by doubting it, by just straight up rejecting it. That's how he does evil. That's how he crashes his car. The second guy crashes his car. The second guy does evil in the sight of the Lord in the opposite way. He doesn't care. He's indifferent. He's frankly too lazy to have any convictions that are noteworthy. He is just a whimsical kind of guy. He's a coward. He's mamby-pamby. He just wants to please people. The first king is the kind of leader that commands his people's respect and then constantly, uh, continually ushers them away from God's word. The second king is the kind of leader who doesn't command anybody's respect. His own people ignore him and disdain him. Before we get to these two kings, let's look at how we say goodbye to Josiah. Remember, he's the godliest king in Israel's history. He just renovated the whole country. I heard in the Passover, we looked at that last week. Verse 28, the rest of the acts of Josiah, all that he did, they're written in the book of Chronicles, Kings of Judah. Again, that's not the biblical book of Chronicles. It's an extra biblical book. In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria, to the river Euphrates. King Josiah went to meet him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo as soon as he saw him. Remember, Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt are the three nations that are fighting. Babylon is small and weak. Assyria is stronger than Babylon, but Assyria is getting conquered by Babylon. They call the Egyptians for help. There's this big meeting of the military there. The Egyptians turn on the Assyrians. Josiah is caught in the middle, and he's killed at Megiddo as soon as Pharaoh saw him. So he's killed by the, the Pharaoh of Egypt. Now what's remarkable here, if you remember last week, is that the prophetess said that Josiah would go to his grave in peace. And now he's killed by Pharaoh. I mean, that's kind of the opposite of going to your grave in peace, right? Getting killed by an Egyptian Pharaoh. But as you go through the rest of Second Kings, you understand what the prophetess meant. She meant that Josiah wouldn't live to see Judah and Jerusalem fall into captivity. 
Jerusalem was at peace when Josiah was slain. And so he gets a nice burial in verse 30. And the people uh, carried him, put him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, anointed him and made him king in his father's place. Jehoahaz is the king that is uh, a wicked king, but he's not going to be around that long. He was 23 years old when he began to reign. He reigned three months in Jerusalem. <laughs> so I'm not even counting him on my list of kings, by the way. His mother's name was Humatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, according to all his fathers has done. Pharaoh put him in bonds in Riblah at the hand of Hamath that he might not run in Jerusalem and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. So this is just letting you know that Israel is pretty much now officially captured by Egypt. You know, if a country is taxing you, you belong to them. And we understand that basic principle. You go to 7-Eleven, you buy your 99-cent Slurpee, you pay like $1.07 because there's an eight-cent tail sax, which is just criminal, I say, criminal. But you're paying that tax to Fairfax County and the state of Virginia and whoever else, you know, the U.S. government. I have no idea who gets that money. But people that you are responsible for get that money. You know, the government of Bermuda does not get that money from your Slurpee. They don't get the right to tax you. But here the Egyptians are taxing the Israelites, and that's because they are exercising control over the land. They own them right now, and they depose the king, by the way. They lay a tax in verse 33, and in verse 34, Pharaoh made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of Josiah's father, change his name to Jehoiakim. And that's just a, a power trip right there. And the Pharaoh says, ah, I don't want you king. You want, I want this different guy king, and I'm going to change his name. Just so he knows who his daddy is, I'm going to change his name. To Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim and Eliakim mean basically the same thing. Eliakim is God will raise me. Jehoiakim is, you know, Yahweh will raise me. Jehoiakim could almost be a more godly name, I suppose. But he took Jehoaz away and came up to Egypt and he died there. Now Jehoiakim gave the silver and gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give the money according to the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and the gold of the people from the land according to everyone, according to assessment, and he gave it to Pharaoh Necho. So this king is taxing his own people to give it to the, the Pharaoh. He's going to reign for 11 years. And man, he is a wicked king. Verse 36, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zabita, the daughter of uh, Pediah of Ramah, and he did what was evil in Yahweh's sight. According to all that his fathers had done, obviously not speaking of Josiah, but the, the rest of the kings of Israel. I mean, this is a wicked, wicked lot. In those days, verse uh, 1 of chapter 24, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. Yahweh sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of Yahweh that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Now that little phrase there, that it was spoken by the servants of prophets should give you to pause. The author of Kings knows this is not in a vacuum here. Anybody reading this book is going to have it connected to a larger book with the book of Jeremiah in it. And he's just letting you know that this is told by the other prophets. And Jeremiah tells the story over chapters. Jeremiah takes chapters to tell the story. We're not going to go through them all tonight. But understand this phrase that you see here, that God sent enemies against Israel. Notice that this is a change in what we've seen before. God has sent the Babylonians against Assyria before, but do you remember what happened? God rescued them. 
And God has sent the Assyrians against Israel before. But do you remember what happened to the Assyrians? The angel of the Lord showed up and killed 100,000 plus of them in the battlefield. So God had always been delivering his people. But now God is out of the delivering business and he's into the judgment business. He's not delivering the people anymore. In fact, he's the one sending their enemies to take them into captivity. And if you're familiar with the book of Jeremiah, you understand this. Jeremiah was begging the people to surrender to the Babylonians. He, I mean, Jeremiah basically said, I don't want you to go to Egypt. I want you to surrender to the Babylonians. They'll treat you nicely. And this is something different than any prophet had ever said before. All of the other prophets to Israel had always said, trust the Lord for your deliverance. Don't call the Babylonians for help. Don't call the Assyrians for help. Don't call the Egyptians for help. Trust Yahweh. And if you trust Yahweh, he will deliver you. That was not Jeremiah's message. Jeremiah's message was Yahweh is done delivering you, so pack your bags. <laughs> pack your bags. Buy a timeshare in Babylon. Get moving. <laughs> and they didn't listen. It was so strange. When the, when the prophets of Israel told the Israelites to fight, they wanted to compromise. They wanted to surrender. And the first prophet that comes along and says, hey, you should surrender, they decide, you know what? We want to fight. That's just typical Israelite. And possibly typical of you too, right? Possible. Just going out of the limb there. It's possible that in your heart is a selfish desire to do what you want to do. And if you could go this way or that way, and you're like, I really don't care. And somebody says, you should go this way. Mm, actually, I was thinking that way. And I say, oh, you should go that way. Mm, now that you mention it, maybe this way is more appealing. And that's one thing when you're talking about which, which way to drive or you know, which tie to wear. It's something different when you're talking about your relationship with the Lord. Well, God doesn't stay neutral in this. God is going to punish the kings of Judah. He's going to punish the kings of Israel for their disobedience because this is his covenant. All of his faithfulness to the other prophets now is done with. Now it is just judgment. And this has been the story of Israel's history. Israel's history has been a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde kind of thing, back and forth, you know, all the way since the time they entered the promised lands. Joshua 6, God gives them a great victory and the, the walls of Jericho fall down. Joshua 7, God defeats them at A because they were harboring sin in their midst. You get to the book of Judges. Judges 1, Caleb leads them into the land and they have great victories and yay, God. And Judges 2, they're weeping and they're sinful and God is judging them. They're weeping so much because God is pouring his wrath on them. Jump into the book of Samuel, same way. God gives them victory through Saul in one battle and in the very next battle, he causes them to be defeated to punish the people. You see this with David. David becomes king and then sin enters the camp and David is exiled from Jerusalem. That's been the story of Israel. You have Ahab giving them judgment and you have Elisha warning them against the judgment. Well, when you take all of Israel's history together, it seems like it's a lot more of the Judges chapter 2 and the Joshua chapter 7 and the Saul's than it is the David's and the Jericho's and the, the Caleb's victories. And now God is going to finally end it all. It's going to be fast. It's going to be ugly. Only a few kings left. And this first king we're looking at now is going to give us the picture of what it's like to fight against God's word. He's going to go down swinging and he's going to go down fighting and he's going to fight against God. You can flip over in your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 36. Let's just, I said I wasn't going to do this, but I like this story so much that 
Jeremiah chapter 36. This is the story of Jeremiah. By the way, at this point in Jeremiah's life, he's been banished from the king's presence. He's not allowed into Jerusalem. The king threw him out. Why did the king throw him out? Because Jeremiah kept saying, you need to move out. And so the king finally said, no, you move out and exiled him. Threw him out of the kingdom. So Jeremiah writes the king a letter to warn him about the judgment that's coming. This is the letter he, uh, you see it described in chapter 36, Jeremiah verse 2. Take a scroll, write it, all the words I've spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah until today. So this is like a life works right here. Jeremiah had been prophesying for, you know, a decade right now, plus, maybe even 20 years at this point. And now he says, take the best of all of my prophecies, put them in one book and, and sell that. And he gives it to his scribe, Baruch. This is in verse 5. It uh, says, because I'm banned from going into the house of Yahweh. I mean, just again, consider the irony here. They ban- the king got so sick of hearing from God's word, he banned it <laughs> as if that would keep it from coming true. And of course, God is persistent here. Jeremiah is persistent. And Jeremiah is not really willingly doing this. Jeremiah would like nothing more than to see God's judgment fall on the king's head. But Jeremiah's heart also breaks for his people. And so he sends the scroll scribe uh, Baruch a letter to give to the king. This is Jeremiah's prophecy. Baruch takes it to the king. Verse 15 of chapter 36, they said to the king, sit down and, and, and read it. And so Barak would read it to them. And as they heard these words, this is the, the king's staff, okay? They heard the words in verse 16. They turned to one another in fear. And they said to Baruch, we must repent of all these things. We must, or sorry, we must report all these words to the king. And they asked us, uh, please, Baruch, tell us, how did you write all these words? Was it at dictation? And Baruch said, Jeremiah dictated all these things to me. And I wrote them with ink on the scroll. So the, the king's staff here is fixated on the process here. Like, how did you actually get these words down? Because remember what this scroll says is you guys are going down. God has finally done it. He's going to kill you all. Pack up and get out because Jerusalem will be destroyed. And the staff hears this and it has the ring of authenticity to it. Apparently exiling the prophet didn't silence him. And so they bring the king his words. Look at verse 22. It was the ninth month and the king was sitting in the winter house. (laughs) Gotta love that king sitting in his winter house. And there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. As Jehudai read three or four columns, so this is the, roll, the scroll that, that Jeremiah wrote. It's being read to the king. Look what the king does. He's read three or four columns of the scroll. The king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the pot. He's doing this to the whole scroll. He's not telling, and he, why not just wad up the whole thing and throw it away? I mean, just think about this image here. You get a letter you don't like, you get junk mail you don't like. Do you read the whole thing? Uh, you, you all went to the Getty concert, so perhaps you're on the Kennedy Center list too. I get the Kennedy Center thing, and it's like a 15-page document, and I can tell right away I'm not going to go see that ballet. I'll, you know, if you like ballet, go, but not my thing. I'm not going to read the 15-page brochure about it. I'm going to take one glance into the recycling box. The king knows he's going to reject Jeremiah's word, but look at what he does. Just imagine the image again of the Kennedy Center list. You get it, and you're like, oh, ballet, I'm not going to do it. So why don't you read me the Acts for the month of June? And you hear him read, into the fire. July, into the fire. I mean, that's a very different statement than ballet's not my thing. (laughs) This is what the king is doing with God's word. He's ripping it column by column and throwing it in the fire, verse 23, until the entire scroll was burned in the fire. Yet neither the king 
In verse 24, nor any of his servants who heard all these words were afraid, nor did they tear their garments. I mean, Jeremiah is saying they didn't care at all. And that's unbelievable to me. They received a stamped and certified letter from the throne room of God telling them what to do to spare their life, and they threw it into the fire. They did not doubt the authenticity of it. This is not the person who says, I don't know if the Bible is God's word or not. I just don't know. That's not this person. We'll see this, that person next. This is the person who says, I know the Bible is God's word, and I reject it. I hate it, and I fight it. This is the person that said, your, says your God is, is a liar, and I don't want to listen to him, and I don't want to believe him. That's this person. He's going to fight against God's word. So Baruch reports back to Jeremiah and says, operation failed. Scroll status burned. (laughs) That was a lot of work, by the way, to handwrite a massive scroll. Do you think burning God's word ends the prophecies in there? Of course not. Look at verse 28. This is Jeremiah telling, uh, speaking back to Baruch, take another scroll Write in it all the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, has burned. And concerning Jehoiakim of Judah, you will say, Thus says Yahweh, you've burned this scroll, saying, Why have you written that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land, will cut off man and beast? Therefore, thus says Yahweh, concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have no one to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body will be cast out in the heat by day and the frost by night. Skip down to verse 32. Jeremiah took another scroll, gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Nerah, who wrote on the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, burned in the fire. And this is one of my favorite lines in the book of Jeremiah. And many similar words were also added to them. (laughs) So you burned the first judgment. They just mailed you a second one, but made it worse. (laughs) They added to it. Oh yeah, and your body's not going to go to its grave. And that, of course, is exactly what happens. You can go back. You can go back. You can go back to 2 Kings. Jehoiakim fights against God's word, rejects the word of the Lord, and that's the context for verse 2. So Yahweh now sends him bands of Chaldeans, bands of Syrians, bands of Moabites, bands of Ammonites, sends against Judah to destroy it according to the word of Yahweh that he spoke by his servants the prophets, namely Jeremiah and Baruch. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of Yahweh. I mean, the author of Kings know this. He's saying it's obvious. God is doing this to punish them. He's going to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done. So, I mean, God's, it's almost like Jeremiah is telling Jehoiakim, look, it's not even personally about you, although you deserve judgment too. It's Manasseh. It was so wicked back then. And the author is going to repeat. It's like the, you know, the, the worst of, it's a documentary flashback, the worst of King Manasseh right here in verse four. Also for the innocent blood that Manasseh had shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and Yahweh would not pardon Now, Manasseh himself repented. Remember, we looked at that a few weeks ago. Manasseh himself got saved. Manasseh's personal sins were forgiven. But that doesn't mean that the judgment that comes upon the people is removed. In other words, there's a corporate element to the sin and a personal element. And the same is true with every kind of sin. Every conceivable kind of sin is, you see that true to this day. You know, just be, if the father raises his family in a, in a wickedly sinful way and is a, a bad example for them and incurs debt for them through, through alcohol and gambling or whatever and, you know, is abusive to his wife and is a terrible role model to his children or leaves his family or whatever, then he gets saved. His sins are forgiven, but the damage done to his family remains. Just because he gets saved doesn't undo the banks don't forgive the debt that he racked up, just to do an obvious example. And that's the same thing that's true here. Manasseh's sins are forgiven, 
but the legacy and the effects and the judgment that God is bringing on the people for his sins is still there to the point that verse 4 says God's not going to pardon it. Now the rest of the deeds of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles, kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim set with his fathers and Jehoiakim, his son, reigned in his place. He's also called Coniah and uh, other, and Jeremiah calls him Coniah because Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim are such similar names that we just get a new name for the second one, Coniah. Not in the book of Kings though because he's just so short here. Um, Verse 6, Jehoiakim slept with his fathers. Jehoiakim, his son, reigned in his place. Verse 7, the king of Egypt did not come again out of his land. For the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. So in other words, now Israel has been defeated by the Babylonians. They went, Josiah killed by the Egyptian pharaoh. So Israel was being ruled by Israel, I mean by Egypt. And now they've been defeated now they're being ruled by the Babylonians so Israel is getting tossed back and forth Jerusalem is now under its second empire and his and his many kings now we're going to meet our well let's do Jehoiachin real real quick he was 18 years old when he became king he reigned three months in Jerusalem that's why he's not even really worth counting here his mother's name was Nehusha the daughter of Elanthon of Jerusalem and he did what was evil on the side of Yahweh according to all that his father had done now we're going to return to him not next week because that's Awano Wars, but two weeks from now, we'll be back with this king. He's only three months here in Jerusalem. That's an important phrase, though. He only ruled three months in Jerusalem. He's going to kind of rule, kind of be a king, a sort of fake puppet king, but later. And he is a critically important person to understanding how the book of 2 Kings ends, but that's in chapter 25. We'll save that. Just pause him, put the little train on that track over there for two more weeks, and uh, we'll remember it two weeks from now. At that time... The servants of Nebuchadnezzar, King 10, King of Babylon, or verse 10, King of Babylon came up to Jerusalem and the city was besieged. Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. So this is the Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful leader in the world right now. He's going to, Babylonian Empire will be the strongest nation in the, in the world. They will conquer even the Egyptians. That emperor comes to Jerusalem himself. Perhaps he heard about what happened to the Assyrians there. Perhaps he's heard about the trouble they've given the Egyptians. He's going to personally oversee this siege. Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon. Himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace, palace officials, the king of Babylon, took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign. He carried off all the treasures of the house of Yahweh, the treasures of the king's house, and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of Yahweh, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had made as Yahweh had foretold. And you're thinking, hey, didn't they strip the temple like last week? Haven't they been stripping the temple every week? Yes, but they keep taxing, they keep filling it out. But now they're starting to cut things off of the wall. Like the furniture is gone. Now they're taking pieces out of the wall. That's how, that's how desperate it's getting. Verse 14, he carried away all Jerusalem. And all the officials and the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives. This, by the way, is the exile Ezekiel gets taken in. You remember Ezekiel gets exiled into Babylon? This is that exile. And all the craftsmen and the smiths, none remained except the poorest people of the land. They stole all of the, Egypt, or all of the Israelites except the poor people. They left the homeless around. They don't want to take them into Babylon. That's what the Babylonians do. They capture they relocate to other places, and then they're going to move other people they captured into your town. If the Babylonians were to capture us, they might take us and pack us up and move us to like some foreign country like California or something. 
And they would take the poor people from Canada or somewhere and move them here to Virginia. That's how the Babylonians do things. They, they move them around. That's what's happening to Israel now, to Judah, Jerusalem. This is happening to J the city of David. Except they leave the, the poorest of the poor. <laughs> leave them. They're not worth taking out to California. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon. The king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, the chief men of the land, he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000 and the craftsmen, the metal workers, 1,000 of them strong and fit for war. The king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. And I just, I just, again, that's such a power move, isn't it? I want you to be king and here's a new name, <laughs> Zedekiah. Now, the first way to, fight, to reject God's word was to fight. The first way to reject God's word was to call God a liar, to rip it up and throw it in the fire. And that did not go well for that king. But as I mentioned, there's a second way to reject God's word. And that's just to shrug your shoulders. And that's just say, hey, that could be true for you, but that doesn't mean it's true for me. Oh, I'm so glad you had an experience with Jesus. It makes you a better person, I'm sure. <laughs> and that, that probably is the most condescending thing someone can say to a Christian, I think. <laughs> I'm so glad this Jesus thing is working out for you. It's made you a better person. It just gives you a better life. I'm glad that works for you. For me, not so much. I'm, I'm fine on my own. I'm doing my own thing. It's just a way of belittling God. But they, it's worded in such a way, it's like a compliment. And that is King Zedekiah. If Jehoiakim rejected God's word by fighting it and burning it, Zedekiah is going to reject God's word by shrugging his shoulders at it. And say, hey, Jeremiah, it works for you. It's great, Jeremiah. I hope this whole prophet thing works out for you. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. What's he reigning over? I mean, there's nothing there. It's homeless. It's still stuck under a drought, by the way. God's not letting the rain fall there to punish them. He was a wicked king. His mother's name was Hamilton, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. Well, what did he do? You don't need to turn there. I'll just read it to you. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 28. Jeremiah has been thrown out of the king's presence because he kept speaking God's word. So remember, the first king who threw him out died, and so Jeremiah comes back. <laughs> comes back and says, hey, here I am. Uh, writes the book of Lamentations because Jerusalem has been destroyed, and that's all, all happening. But before that happens, he comes back to Jerusalem. He's still telling the people, you guys should get out of here. You really should get out of here. And this king says, Jeremiah, you can't keep talking about God's word. And you can't keep talking about God's word. And Jeremiah says, well, why, why not? Won't you listen to me? And the king says, I will not listen to you. You keep speaking God's word out of the city. And so he has his people throw him out of the city. But then he chases the king, or he chases Jeremiah down and calls him back and says, quick, with no one listening, just you and me, what's the word of the Lord? <laughs> so get out, make a big scene, I'm throwing you out, but then... She said, a little insight from God? I mean, what's God thinking? Let me know. And you might think, how did such a spineless person become king? Well, because the king of Babylon made him king. It was a form of judgment on his people. You know, you've heard it said, <laughs> the problem with democracy is that people get exactly the kind of leaders they deserve. <laughs> In Israel, the same thing is true. 
God gives them exactly the kind of leader they deserve. This is the perfect kind of leader for Israel right now. They just don't care about God. They don't care. And by the way, if you remember how that story goes, Jeremiah won't give him the word of the Lord. And so do you remember what the, the, the king says? Well, get out of here, get out of here. So Jeremiah leaves preaching and they seize him and they try to drown him by throwing him into a cistern. But the bottom of the cistern only had mud because they were under a drought. There was no water. So now Jeremiah is stuck in the mud in a cistern. One of the king's servants comes and says, hey, Jeremiah has been in the cistern for three days. And the king said, that shouldn't be. I had sent him away. I gave him safe passage. And they said, he's in the cistern. <laughs> so the king doesn't want to be seen helping Jeremiah. So he gets his eunuch and tells the eunuch, go get Jeremiah out of the cistern. And the eunuch says, I can't lift him out of a cistern. I don't have the strength to do that. And if you don't know what a eunuch is, then get a study Bible. <laughs> this eunuch says, I can't do that. And so he says, fine, take two other people. So three eunuchs, and there's a textual variant. It may have been 30, but at the very least, the ESV goes with three eunuchs go. And they have to get bed sheets together, and they make a harness, and they lower it in the cistern to pull Jeremiah out and sell him to go away before the king hears about this. I, no, the king didn't want anybody to know. The king didn't want Jeremiah to die, but the king didn't want Jeremiah to live. The king didn't want Jeremiah to prophesy, but he didn't want him to drown in a cistern. But he didn't want to rescue him personally, so he'll send his eunuchs to do it. That's King Zedekiah. And it's a sad way to live your life as a Zedekiah. In a sense, you almost have to give a little bit of respect for Jehoiakim. Like, at least he was outspoken about his distaste for God. At least you knew where he stood. He rejected God's word. It's almost like that you can work with. <laughs> so much harder with a Zedekiah who just says, hey... I don't know. I don't know, Jeremiah. You tell me how this is going to turn out. And then doesn't care anyway. God responds to, Je Ze to Zedekiah this way. He did what was evil, verse 19 says, according to all that Jehoiakim had done, because the anger of Yahweh, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them from his presence. And chapter 24 ends with an ominous word here. Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Well, it's an interesting way for the chapter to end. Again, don't turn there. I'll just read it for you. Jeremiah 37, after he gets rescued from the cistern, he sends the last message to the king, tells King Zedekiah, this is Jeremiah 37, I think verse 20-ish or so, you shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. And then Jeremiah proclaims, what wrong have I done to you and your servants or this people that you have put me in this prison? Where are your prophets who prophesied to you saying you'll have peace? The king of Babylon won't attack you. So here now, please, O oh my lord, the king, let my humble plea come before you. Do not send me back to the house of Jonathan, the secretary, or I'll die there. He was trying to telling him, hey, the secretary will give you food. The secretary didn't have food. Meanwhile, the crowd is saying, put him to death, put him to death. And king Zedekiah says, behold, to the crowd, he's in your hands. The king can do nothing to stop you. I mean, basic, Pilate basically quotes. Pilate basically says exactly that when he crucifies Jesus. Hey, I heard him. I don't find anything wrong with him, but let me give him back to you and you can do whatever you want to with him. That's really tragic, but notice what Jeremiah's last words to King Zedekiah were. Babylon will destroy you. Notice what the next thing Zedekiah does at the end of 2 Kings 24. Rebels against the king of Babylon. Even in his indifference, he can't get himself sorted out.
Maybe he thought God would show up. I don't know. I don't know about that. I worked at a restaurant once, and we were opening, and the uh, manager walks in and says, where's, where's Steve? Where's, where's Steve? Steve should be here. He should be making salads or whatever Steve's job was. I think it was salads, if I remember correctly. Steve should be on the salads. You, you sort of call Steve. Aren't you guys friends? And I was friends with Steve. So I, I call, call Steve and say, hey, where are you, man? And he says, they fired me yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fired. Okay. So I told the manager, I guess you guys should communicate better because the guy who was working last night, the manager who was working last night, fired Steve. <laughs> Oh, well, that would explain why he's not showing up, wouldn't it? I mean, that is one mystery solved right there. You have that in your mind when you finish chapter 24. Where is God right now? Jerusalem is captive. Ezekiel is captive. Jeremiah is stuck in a cistern. Isaiah is sawn in two. Where is God? And the answer is, well, you fired him yesterday. I mean, did you expect him to deliver you? You got rid of him. Now, it's interesting that the end of 2 Kings, I think, parallels the end of the church age so well. The end of 2 Kings, Israel is filled with scoffers and mockers that are suffering under the weight of their sin and are too proud or too indifferent to ask God to save them. 2 Peter 3, verse 3 says, In the last days, scoffers will come with scoffing following their own sinful desires. I think the pattern here is that with the decline of God's word in a society, it leads to the proliferation of sinful desires. It leads to human autonomy. It leads to people who think that if I reject the Bible, that it can't control me. If I reject God, then he can't tell me what to do. And in that sense, I think what you see in our world today is, of course, I mean, it's, it's obvious what was happening at the end of 2 Kings. And it's obvious because that's prophecy. Peter says that will happen. Paul says it'll happen, 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And then Paul says, avoid such people. Avoid them. This is what you see at the end of 2 Kings. Two ways to reject God's word. To fight it, burn it, or to ignore it and shrug your shoulders at it. I think it doesn't apply to you. Both have the same end, by the way. It's not that one ends differently than the other. It both ends with God's judgment. It both ends with God's judgment. What a contrast with our, how our Savior approached God's word. You know, there's no more good kings in the book of 2 Kings. There's no more patterns. There's no more examples. No other, no other person to follow here in the book of 2 Kings. All of these kings of Judah were pointing, supposed to point, to the first king, the great king, the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last king. Jesus, when he comes as the king, would keep the word perfectly. He wouldn't fight it. He wouldn't ignore it. He would obey it perfectly. And that's because he believed it. You can tell Zedekiah didn't really believe God's word. You can tell Jehoiakim didn't really believe God's word. But the real king of Israel, Jesus, when he comes, he will believe it. He'll believe it with strength. He'll believe it with conviction. He'll believe it with power. And he'll believe it with leadership. And so in a real sense, you and I have to decide what king we follow. Which pattern we follow. Now, I know we don't have an Israelite king who's 
you know, on the throne in this world right now reigning over us. But there are those three responses to God's word. There's the person who fights it, and that ends in judgment. There's the person who ignores it, and that ends in judgment. And there's the king who believes it and receives it and obeys it perfectly. And if you follow that king, his obedience becomes ours. If you follow that king, his forgiveness becomes ours. That's the king that offers us eternal life because that's the king that died for our sins. Lord, we're thankful that you gave your life so that we might live. We, above all else, are thankful people. We want to be obedient people. We want to be people that are marked by a desire to hear your word, by a desire to receive your word. Lord, we don't want to fight your word. We don't want to shrug our shoulders at it. We want it to impact our heart. We pray that you would use the things we learned tonight to fit our hearts, to better understand the world around us. Lord, I pray that you would guard our lives from the Jehoiakim response, that you would keep us from fighting against your word. I pray that you would guard our lives from the Zedekiah response, that you would keep us from shrugging at your word. And you would draw us into our Savior's pattern. Because he loved your word and he kept it and obeyed it. And we can love him. And his obedience becomes our obedience. His life becomes our life. His love for your word becomes our love for the word. Lord, we want to be found in him. We don't want to pattern our lives after those who the world forgets about. We don't want to pattern our lives even as those in Corinth were doing that we read about earlier today, they were pattering their lives after themselves, boasting about themselves, slandering your word. We want to be different than them. We want to pattern our lives after our Savior who lived and died for us so that we can live and die in you, knowing that in the future there's a resurrection. Just as he rose, we will rise also. We pray that you would seal that truth in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.